I'm Shane from Shane Sutholm here today on Mind Matters, navigating head injury and concussions. And I'm here with John, one of the attorneys at Shane Sutholm with the Concussion and Brain Injury Group. And we're going to be talking about a particular case he had where basically the client had a TBI and the impact it had on the case overall. Um, John, how did this accident occur? So Shane, this accident involving our client was a very serious accident where the defendant was not paying attention and ended up rear-ending our client at a high rate of speed about 40 miles per hour created some very serious property damage mainly actually to the defendant's car which was shredded and totaled and believe it or not our client's car sustained very minimal damage so the the car kind of did its job to protect them the bumper absorbed a lot of the energy but what we'll talk about too is that just because there was not a lot of property damage, um, it, it doesn't mean that a lot of forces weren't then exerted on our client and caused a lot of injuries. Yeah, because I, I know sometimes some of the force analysis people too will, will say, you know, when a bumper doesn't collapse, when the car doesn't collapse and it, and it remains stiff, all that force ends up going in, it's got to go somewhere. And it goes in whipping the car forward or it goes into the person or, or whatever. Whereas the ones that collapse actually absorb more damage. And it sounds like a lot of this force went into this client. Absolutely. And you know, the injuries were immediate and apparent, both injuries to some orthopedic injuries and as well as brain injury. And what were the brain injuries that were immediately there? Was it was he knocked out? Was he dizzy? What how was it at the scene? Yeah, so at the scene and in 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 some of the telltale initial brain injury symptoms we saw here, which was the dizziness, the nausea, the brief loss of consciousness. All of these things are the first signs of a brain injury or some sort of energy transfer to the brain. And that's what we saw here with this client. And, and when we say brief loss of consciousness, what, what does that mean? Because, you know, when I talk to folks, some people think it's, you know, just a second. Some people think it's like 10 minutes. How long do we know how long this client was out or did, did they just think it was just a minute? or a little bit. So this is always a very hard thing to go back and check because a lot of times the person who sustains the brain injury is not the best historian. So they don't even know. Exactly. It could feel what could feel like a minute to some people is actually 10 seconds or they are out for an hour. And, and that's the hard part is that you don't always know the exact timeline. So when I'm talking to my clients who we suspect have a brain injury, I'm usually phrasing it more along the lines of, you know, is there a portion of the accident you don't remember? Okay. And a lot of times we can piece it together that way where, you know, they'll hear screeching brakes and the next thing they'll remember is when EMS or a witness or a bystander is knocking on their window, waking them up. So that shaking means clearly them. something happened. Yeah. The, the light switch got turned off at that point, unfortunately, when you, when you have these long blackout periods. And sometimes there's, when, when you injure your brain too, there's a period where you're kind of in like, almost like a, a drunken, disoriented stupor is the best way that my clients explain it, where you're, you're half with it but you're definitely disoriented. So you're not you're normal. Not, not normal, not making sense. And when we see our clients that have friends and family in the car that didn't have a head injury, they're, they're usually explain like, you know, mom or dad, something wasn't right. So, so any, I mean, is it fair to say anytime somebody is like, hey, I'm, I'm missing part of the accident or, you know, right after the accident, I felt like I was drunk or everything was blurry. Is it reasonable to say then they most likely hit their head or suffered some kind of impact to the brain? I think that is the safest place to start as the default 
because what else would explain that? You know, you don't typically walk around fumbling your words, being disoriented, having nausea, blurry vision. Those are clear head injury symptoms. And with what we know from the statistics of there being almost 40% of all motor vehicle accidents result in some degree of head injury, I think it's safe to start at that point and then piece together the facts if we have any EMS. Sometimes the EMS uh, notes will notate if they think that head injury occurred or they're showing brain injury symptoms. Um, if we're lucky enough to have bystander witnesses or family members in the car, that really helps us tell the full story. Now is EMS, how reliable is it if they don't put something about a head injury in their notes? It doesn't mean anything. And, and the thing is it can vary based off of how busy uh, the EMS personnel making the notes is that day or how thorough they are on the notes. So much stuff gets left off. We only get lucky when they actually put it on there and do a very thorough brain injury investigation. So that's not taking anything away from the EMS. They just may have five of the calls and, or a gunshot. They may just have something else where they're like, oh, you're okay. And okay meaning you're not gonna die. Put you in and go because we got another thing going on, right? You nailed it. <laughs> so okay. like, if if two cars are flipped over and on fire and it's mass mayhem and you know they're they're probably not focused on well, let me make sure I get every single note down to the T and you know if they were slurring their words correctly, they're probably more worried about getting the client to the hospital because that's their life. That's their primary right. job is to get you to the hospital so they can fix you, right? Stabilize you and get you there. And like we discussed, a concussion is not likely to kill you at the scene or or once you're awake you're unlikely to expire in the next hour, probably. Correct. Okay. So if it's not there, that's not anything. The most reliable thing is probably the person, if they say they're missing time. That's correct, yeah. All right, Absolutely. and this client was, you said, I mean, you said it was readily apparent. What happened after that so, in the context of the head injury stuff? Certainly, so, you know, with it being such traumatic brain injury symptoms already showing up, immediately the client did the right thing which was get to um, get urgent immediate care and you know the unfortunate worst was then confirmed which is that the first medical doctors who started to see the client confirmed that yes there was definitely a concussion and there was post-concussion syndrome or excuse me post-concussion symptoms and as well as headaches so in your opinion anytime somebody's missing time or thinks they got knocked out they definitely need to go to the ER 100% even if I feel okay, but if I don't remember the accident, that there's a problem. 100%, if you think of loss of consciousness or you don't remember if you did or didn't hit your head, it's, it's always out of abundance of caution, get to a medical specialist so they can just be sure. Because as, we, as we've spoken about on prior podcasts, you know, the unfortunate consequence, if you have something serious going on or a brain, brain bleed, you can potentially die. Um, and these are things that do happen. You know, if you have bleeding on the brain that goes untreated, you may fall asleep and never wake up. You may experience severe, severe complications that would aggravate and worsen your long-term kind of outlook. And is that kind of, you know, that old, I'm not gonna say old, the old advice people you see on TV shows, somebody's got a concussion, it's, you gotta wake them up every hour, every two hours, kind of, is that? Because we're worried about that brain bleed, so if I hit it, even though I might feel totally fine if I go home and I'm tired and sleepy, that could be it. I mean, it's probably not, but it could be. 
Yeah, that, that old advice is actually still kind of good advice, <laughs> honestly, because, and, and the main thing that that advice was kind of getting at is that you, you don't just want to go home and try and sleep it off where yeah. no one's monitoring you or watching you, yeah. and you could find yourself in trouble and becoming incapacitated, and then it, it gets worse and worse. So yes, that, that, that advice still holds up, but really the main underlying goal of it is get to the doctor and let them figure it out. Right. Let them tell you you are okay. So John, this client had visible symptoms at the scene and they took him to the emergency room. What happened there? So typically at the emergency room, they'll go through an entire process of determining the severity of the injury and this can be accomplished through interviewing the patient, getting an idea of what exactly happened in the accident. So a lot of times we'll see in medical records, they'll notate the severity of the accident based off of whatever the, the patient seeing them tells them. That seems a little unreliable if they've suffered a head injury. It is. Okay. It is. So you can see how a lot of stuff can kind of get lost in, in, in the madness here when you're trying to explain what happened, but you're also very disoriented. So that's why these medical professionals are trained to, you know, trust but verify as to what happened. If they suspect an accident was worse, then they'll order the appropriate scans, typically a CT scan. However, if they, you know, aren't kind of conveyed how serious the accident was. We unfortunately see a lot of our brain injury clients get discharged from the hospital without the proper stuff occurring. And, really? that, and that means the proper imaging or being held for long enough. Um, so that's why the follow-up with the neurologist is always crucial to, you know, your treatment in a case. If there is one of these. So I was going to say, are they great at screening for concussions and stuff at the emergency room? Or is that need some work or is it just varied greatly depending on where you're at? It varies greatly depending on where you're at, how stressed the hospital system is. We all know post-pandemic, the, the kind of stresses that our healthcare system goes goes through in trying to provide the best care and then, you know, they tri triage patients accordingly. Ideally, they would do an MRI, but we, we find out more and more that an MRI takes too long and they're, they're very expensive. So typically a CT scan is ordered, even though an MRI has little to no radiation um, like a CT scan does. You know, constantly they order the CT scan when in fact the MRI would tell us more about the brain injury. That's why follow-up care and, and doing the neurologist follow-up is so, so important so you can get the appropriate clinical correlation of your brain injury and get the proper, the actual better diagnostic um, image, which is the MRI, way stronger than a CT scan. What's clinical correlation mean? That means that if they were to do a, an MRI and saw that maybe there was a bruise or injury to the brain, that alone probably isn't going to be able to confirm the, the brain injury. But if the neurologist then does evaluates the client clinically and, and says, oh, here's all your symptoms. So you've hurt this part of your brain that controls, you know, vision and memory and I'm seeing here when I'm examining you that you're complaining that you don't know directions to your house anymore when you're driving and your vision's blurry. Well, we've just correlated what the imaging is showing us that, hey, these symptoms of that brain injury area are, are showing up when I'm talking to you. And sometimes they'll do things like uh, brain check tests where they'll examine your cognitive abilities. These things are how they correlate. So they're matching the tests with what you're telling them basically or what they're seeing. Exactly, and okay. that's exactly what happened here. Um, when this client got in with a neurologist, thankfully, quickly, they immediately suspected brain injury based off of, of, of the client's symptoms. And then they ordered something called a VNG, a brain check, 
and a balance test. Okay, what, um, let's go through those. What are they? Yeah, so they're specific tests that can analyze, what the VNG will analyze vestibular function and your, the vestibular portion and region of your brain control things like, you know, it, it would have, if it was injured, it would impact things like dizziness, nausea, potentially some of your vision, a little bit of your hearing, memory, and it's it's part of a greater brain injury kind of. Um, so the dizziness, nausea, those are huge signs. You've got an issue with that. Huge signs. Okay. And this test that the client had was positive. So the finding there was that they did in fact suffer brain injury. The balance issue, when you sometimes when you injure your brain, believe it or not, your brain controls balance and how well you can steady yourself. Um, this client was unfortunately and very sadly just barely able to walk down a hallway in his house. Felt like he was kind of on like a cruise ship um, feeling. And that's that's a terrifying feeling because as you get older and you're having that cruise ship balance issue feeling, you're more prone to falls. Okay, yeah which are huge for, for older people in particular, but, but for everybody. Absolutely, everybody. You fall and break your hip, that's a life-changing incident. You're constantly falling, you're constantly injuring yourself. You know, not even to mention the fact that it makes you kind of feel queasy and sick. And these are symptoms that this client experience. And I'm guessing that varies as well, right? Depending on the severity of the injury. So it could be just, I'm a little dizzy to, like yeah. this client, I can barely walk down the hall. Absolutely. There's, there's so many different shades of the severity of the injury and tears to the point where some people, they're just completely disabled. They couldn't even look at a computer screen to do work because their vision and balance is, is just so discombobulated that they're not going to be able to be, to function. Luckily, our client was in between there. So, you know, still very functional, but quality of life just went so, so far down for this client. And that equates to a lot of pain and suffering and just like a very hard life. Because life changed for this client. And that's one of the reasons why we want to always ask before and after questions, right? How is it before? How has it changed? Because just having the injury doesn't always equate to a large PI settlement if you can't explain what the impact to your life was. And this client, it sounds like, was great at explaining the impact. Absolutely. friends and family, I guess. Absolutely, and the, the before and after kind of accounts and stories and witnesses that we collect on cases like this, they're arguably just as important as the medical documentation because they show what the person was and then what the accident caused them to lose. And yeah. that loss is what we put money value on. I mean, if your life is forever changed in a worse way, then that's how we help value your claim. So in this case, our client lost quite a bit. And so yep. we realized we needed to get every possible penny out there for this client. Now, before we get to that, now you said there were three tests they did. They did the uh, VNG, what were the other, other two tests? And let's talk about those. One was a balance test. And this test is, you know, I haven't seen one done personally, but I've, I've read about kind of what they do. They literally check your balance um, and will take you through a battery of tests where they can check to see if you're stabilizing properly or sometimes if you're leaning or okay. losing your balance and it varies but they do a lot of different tests to kind of check and see if you're having issues with that and if you test positive which this client did you get labeled a high fall risk okay. you may have heard that term in the hospital some hospitals use it nursing homes use it a lot um, as we age our you know the the elder members of our society become high fall risk and it it really creates an additional burden on someone else, whether it's a caretaker, a family member. So now our client, unfortunately, is gonna to have to have the support of family members, friends, 
who knows, maybe down the road, nurses are, are personal kind of care assistants because they're a fall risk. Um, so they need someone to kind of monitor them. And just being labeled that I know has an impact on your quality of life. It, even I've seen people in the hospital, the high fall risk person is told, don't get out of the bed without hitting the nursing button. Don't go do anything by yourself without an aid. It just, I mean, even just in that limited environment, I, I've seen an impact. I can't imagine in a nursing home or in, a, in some other scenario, the, the loss of ability you would have just by laying a label to fall risk because they, they restrict you from doing everything. Right. And for good reasons. I mean, you know, yeah. I mean, there's a valid reason, but it's still gonna impact you tremendously. Right, and if we were presenting this to a jury, we would definitely frame it as a loss of independence, right? And that's a huge thing and everyone can relate to that because it's so nice, you know, I'm hungry, I wanna go grab some lunch. I'm gonna hop on the car and I'm gonna run down and get my favorite meal, come back home, enjoy myself. You lose all that when you lose your independence and everyone can relate to that because no one wants to be a burden on someone else. No one wants to have someone else take care of them. So in these types of cases, that's what we present to the jurors. We, we say, you know, this is a loss of independence and this person needs to be compensated for that huge life change. Yeah, no, now that I think about it, I mean, even just getting out of your favorite chair and going in the kitchen and making a sandwich, it, it has increased risk, right? Or what about people who live in two-story homes? Oh, it's a nightmare. Some of these clients that I have with these symptoms, they would have to completely overhaul their life. Yeah. If they lived in a two-story house, that becomes a obstacle course. Yeah. They, they probably need to downsize or even consider moving, and chances are that probably is what happens in a lot of cases. And that's a huge impact, obviously, because you have to sell, realtor fees, the hassle, find a place that works, leave your home, which for some people, they've lived in the same home for 10, 15, 20, 20 years. And you, you wipe all that away and you move into a new place where maybe you didn't raise your kids anymore, which for some people it isn't a big deal and for other people it's a huge deal depending on how your lifestyle has been. Yeah. Uh, and I can just imagine in today's environment everything is much, would be much more limited to finding a one-story home that would work financially. Absolutely. So that's the second test. What was the, the last test, John? The last test was the brain check and that is a cognitive battery. And when we say cognitive battery, that's basically means that it, it tests things like recall, basic facts, your ability to remember things. This client performed very poorly. And what they do is they compare how you perform to the rest of basically the general public. Um, okay. So they can actually give you a percentile result. It's kind of like taking the SATs a little bit. Yeah, you don't study for this test, but it, it is a test. And you know, when you score very, 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 very poorly, it's typically indicative when matched up with other symptoms, it's, it, it helps support the fact that the brain was injured and now it's having issues recalling things and memory. And these are important tasks when you think about jobs, managing your own life, organization skills, planning your day out, executive functions. And if you can't do that, then guess what? Life just got a whole lot harder. Things we don't even think about really. We think they're normal stuff. Just plan, what do I gotta do today? This, this, and this, go to the store, go to work, get gas in my car, all those things. And they lose the ability to do that or it becomes much harder, is that right? Absolutely, and, and you know, when you can't do these things, then people tend to get frustrated, it makes life harder. You see decrease in job performance. Maybe you get terminated from your job. Maybe you can't find a new job. So it's, it's a huge disruptor to life. Wow, all right, so those are the three big tests. Our client had some injuries. What happened on this? So 
after we reached kind of a what we call a stabilized point, we had to we had to stick with the treatment for a long time because you know if if these symptoms don't get better at the six month, twelve month range, then they're unfortunately typically permanent, which we've talked about in the so past. So it's gonna take. 12 months to figure out where you're at. Yeah, we never rush these cases. We like them to just evolve organically so we can see exactly where the client has started, where they're going to. In this case, that is exactly what happened where the, the symptoms basically stabilized and we were able to move the case forward, kind of generally knowing that nothing else was gonna occur symptom-wise. Yeah. And then once we were able to do that, we submitted a demand to there were numerous insurance companies involved in this case so right. we had a, a bunch of negotiation ahead of how us. do you end up with bunches of insurance companies so one of our one of our goals as the attorney is to identify any and all monies okay um, and covers that may be out there and and a lot of times we see you can have the defendant's vehicle, the okay. owner. Sometimes the owner. if the if someone else is driving the owner's car, you have the owner's insurance and then the defendant driver's insurance. Okay. You can go after those too. After those are exhausted, then you have your own insurance, any work insurance if you're in a work okay. vehicle. And North Carolina has some great laws, it's called a resident relative, where if anyone who you are married to or related to by blood and that goes way far out, it can be a second cousin, All right. is living with you, then you can use their insurance as well. All right, so that's part of your job, other than, as well as helping the client is to do some digging, basically. And in this case, it sounds like you dug around and you guys found multiple insurance companies to, to try to help this client out. We did, and you know there was such a good job done by the medical doctors to document the file that, at least for the, the first two insurance companies, we got them to give us all their money very, very quickly. Okay. The last two were a fight. And, and, and when we have pushback from the insurance providers, when we know what has happened to our client, yeah. we know the severity of the injuries, the medical documents are clear, then I realize it becomes a point and a goal for me that I'm gonna need to educate the adjuster on just how bad this is. If you're not in, you know, someone that deals with brain injuries a lot, one of these insurance adjusters, then you might not know just how life-changing they are and that's okay, that's yeah. when we come in and we use those before and after letters we use the, the the diagnosis that the neurologist gave us and we show that at every single medical provider symptoms of the brain injury were present and then we just explain basic things like you know you, you can't remember how to drive home after having some serious negotiations and provide them with supplemental information we're able to get the third insurance company to give us all the money and then we got very, very low offers from the final insurance company. We went through the same kind of rotation of education, educating the adjuster, providing more supplemental information, and then we were able to get all the money after you know a long negotiation battle. What's the outlook for our client? How's he doing at the end of this? Has life gotten manageable? It's manageable. And, and the thing with these brain injuries is that it's a new normal. Um, never going to have be completely healed. This stuff is permanent. So that is the unfortunate aspect of it. But, you know, getting a very large six-figure-plus settlement can help with some of the costs associated with this new normal. That would be things like helping with the fall risk and helping with the memory issues, being having now having money to potentially get treatment like cognitive therapy. Okay. We talked about the cognitive brain check. You can do at-home mental exercises to try and stay sharp. 
Im improve any areas that were injured in your brain and kind of regrow okay. that brain area. Um, so it really helps our client when we can get a good settlement so that they have a lot of options moving forward. And that's really what it does, right? It provides options to make life ma more manageable. Correct. Okay. John, I mean, it, it sounds like we just had a client in a bad situation and by your digging and making sure they got the, the best medical care they could and digging into all the policies and finding all the money, we were able to, to make a, a difficult situation more manageable. What advice would you give to anybody listening who's been in, a, in an accident like this? What, what one piece of advice would you tell them? I think that the first thing you need to do immediately is seek medical care um, from, a, from an emergency medical situation, go into the ER, and then your next phone call should be to an attorney. Yeah. T brain injury cases are too tough to navigate by yourself, especially if you are the person, if you're the with person the brain who had injury, the brain injury, right? You need help, not only from family and friends, but you need help from an attorney to navigate this process because they are some of the most life-changing injuries that you can sustain in a motor vehicle accident. And it sounds like even in this particular case, I mean, you had to do a ton of educating to the adjusters for these second and third and fourth insurance policies to get them to understand the severity of the injury, or at least to acknowledge the severity of it and then pay up. Correct. It's it's complicated science. It's complicated studies. It's a lot of anatomy and physiology, and so unless you are doing these cases day in day out, it it, it can be tough to understand everything. And this is why education is such a big part of educating these these adjusters so that they properly value the cases. All right, a good deal. Well, John, thanks for being on the show today. We appreciate it. Uh, for anybody listening, if you liked what you hear heard or are trying to get more information on brain injuries and concussions, I hit like and 